Good morning. My name is Kyle. I want to welcome you to New Life Community Church. If you have your Bible, would you open to Ephesians chapter 6, please? Ephesians chapter 6 is where we'll be. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to say good morning to the boys and girls that have joined us today. Uh, just know today, boys and girls, that the Lord has a word for you also, not only for your mommy and daddy or guardian who may be with you. Uh, the Lord wants to speak to you today too. And so I would ask that you listen and and listen well this morning. Let me read our passage today. We're going to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 as we, as we prepare for this, this message, which is really just kind of the final installment of uh, this series on the church and the home that we've been in. Next week, we'll dive into uh, our fall series, which will be in the book of Titus. So I'm looking forward to, to jumping into that also. But, but here we are in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 today, and here's what it says, verse 1. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we we give honor and glory to you. We place your name above every other name in its rightful place in our own hearts and in our own minds today. Uh, we submit ourselves to you today, Lord, and to your word. And Father, we ask now that as we hear your word read and talked about, preached about, Father, we ask that our hearts would be inclined to trust you, to believe you, to follow you all the days of our lives. Lord, I pray that you grant each one of us, myself included, uh, ears and eyes uh, to hear and see today, Lord, that we would have hearts that are open, receptive to your word, that we might believe it, that it would grow deep roots in our lives and bear mighty fruit in the coming years that you grant to us. Uh, we praise you for your word. We praise you for this time now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, this text and then my text from last week, which was Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, are, at least for me, two of the most humbling passages of, of Scripture on parenting uh, in the Bible. Uh, they're not the only ones on parenting in the Bible. They're just two of the most humbling for me. When I look into these words, when I see these words in Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy 6, uh, my heart, my mind is immediately humiliated. Uh, in it, in these passages, I, I see the weight of what God has granted to me when He made me a father. I also see the weight of what God has granted to me when He made me a pastor, and that is to lead men and women, boys and girls, also to understand the weight of a passage like this. And so these are humbling words in Ephesians 6. These are words that are difficult to comprehend apart from the Lord. And so I want to show you that today. God's call to Christian parenting, God's call to Christian childhood is weighty. And we'll see that today, that He means for us to understand this on a scale or at a level that others will not understand it. As Christian parents, we will be held accountable for how we handled God's commands for parents. And as Christian children, we will be held accountable for how we, how we uh, dealt with or handled God's commands for children. This passage, is just, 
this passage here addresses really three groups of people. Two of them are explicit. Two of them uh, we, can, we can see very clearly. The first is children. The second are parents, right? So we implicitly have another one, though, and that is the church. But the church is also being addressed here. Ephesians, by way of its context, is a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus. It's a letter to the Ephesians, uh, to the believers and the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, just some context about the city itself, Ephesus was a deeply religious city. It's, it's rooted in idol worship. I mean, it, it's full of idol worship. It's, uh, there are craftsmen who, who you hear about in Acts chapter 19 who became enraged at Paul, who became enraged at what was called the way, which is what we now know as Christianity, became enraged at this because people were turning away from idols and turning to the one true God. And in doing so, idol makers were losing money without jobs. Silversmiths, coppersmiths, people fashioning these things, uh, stone workers are losing work because people are saying, we don't need these anymore. We need the one true God. And, and so there's a, a riot that breaks out even in Acts 19 that you can read about there in the city of Ephesus because of this. Now, Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus. He's not writing to the city of Ephesus. He's writing to a church in Ephesus, to people, men and women, who are believers. And this letter can be broken into uh, two sections, if you will. The first would, would be, maybe we just title it Doctrine, and that is uh, your new life in Christ. It deals with the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of, of sanctification, the doctrine of your new life in Christ. How did you come to be saved? How did you come to know God? And that's chapters 1 through 3. And then it deals with duty, which is your new work as a Christian, your new work for Christ. It deals with, uh, again, sanctification. Now the work of sanctification, not just simply how it's taking place in you, but the working itself out. It's putting off the old man, taking on the new man. It deals with uh, the, our relationships to one another, which is what we see here. It, specifically, uh, it deals with your relationships between members of a church body. It deals with the relationships of husband and wife. It deals with the relationships of slaves and their masters. It deals with the relationships of children and their parents, and so on. It deals with the relationship of pastors and teachers to their church. So chapters 1 through 3 are some of the most amazing words of doctrine that we have in our Bibles. They're fascinating. They'll, they'll cause you to do what Paul does at the end of Ephesians 3, uh, to, to just exult in God. He, he, he pins a doxology there where he's just praising God for the height and the depth and the width of His love toward us. That's what it does. That's what doctrine does or should do when it's understood aright. It should cause praise. Theology leads to doxology. The study of God leads to the praise of God. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we have some of the most practical words on Christian duty in our Bibles. Uh, I've mentioned those already, so I won't do that again. Uh, but 4 through 6 is laying out the practice of being a Christian. What does it look like now? You've got this new identity in Christ. How are you to respond to God? How are you to live in the world around you? If I were going to summarize the book of Ephesians with one passage, I was just going to pick one set of scriptures in the book of Ephesians to summarize the book, I would have picked uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10. Here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation is not yours, it's from God. It's not of your own doing, it's from the Lord. How do we know this? Well, because Ephesians 1 and 2 tell us this explicitly. But then in verse 10, it's reiterated. For we are His workmanship. What does that mean? It means He created us. He made us new. We are created new in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, men and women, boys and girls, listen to me. Before we will ever get our identity and calling right as church members, before we ever get our duty, our calling, our identity right as children or as parents, we must first correctly understand our identity in Christ. That if you are a believer, you are one because God has saved you by His grace through faith in His Son, Jesus. And, and that faith, God says, is not your own. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of your works so that you can't pat yourself on the back, so that you can't hold your arms up and say, look how mighty I am. I saved myself from hellfire. But instead, you look to God and you say, praise God, He saved me from my sins. God gets the glory, God gets the honor, God gets the praise for your salvation. And so you are then His workmanship. You are His creation. You're created for good works. It says that God prepared beforehand. So even before you were saved, God's preparing these good works for you that you should walk in them. So salvation is from God. Your new life in Christ, your new identity is from God. The works that God has for you are from God. You understand that all of your salvation, all of your life in Christ is not your own. It is from God. Paul begins the book of Titus, we'll look more at this again next week, by, by saying that he is a servant of God. And the word servant there is the word uh, doulos, which is slave. He is a slave to God. And this is the understanding that we have here about our identity in Christ, is that we are slaves to Christ. We are not our own master anymore. He is our master. Amen? He's the one we worship. He's the one we submit ourselves to. He's the one who we're seeking to obey at all costs. He has our complete devotion, our complete allegiance. We are His workmanship. And so you need to understand your identity in Christ first because if you miss it, if you miss who you are in Christ first, though you might be a well-behaved child, though you might be a quote-unquote good parent, you will be eternally lost. You'll be eternally lost. Without Christ saving you from your sins, without your allegiance in Him, you are eternally lost. And so Paul's address to children and parents in Ephesians 6 is an address to the church. It's an address to people who are saved. The word for church is ecclesia. It means those who are called out. It's a gathering of those called out. Called out of what? Called out of the world. Into a new people, a new creation. And this is what we have as we're gathered here this morning. We have those who are called out of the world. Those who are listening to the Word of God and seeing what God would say to them today. What does He want from me? 
You see, all of that's important because a passage like Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is extremely dangerous if you don't have the context. It's dangerous because it can lead to legalism. It can lead to feelings of failure, which you might have anyway, but then in your failure you've got no hope if you've got no Christ. But if you know Christ, you know hope. If you know Christ, you know peace. If you know Christ, you know strength. If you know Christ, you know joy. If you know Christ, you know mercy, you know grace, you know perseverance. And this is what Paul is laying out in Ephesians 1 through 3, and he's saying in his letter, we have to get this right before I get to the matters of duty. We have to settle this. Because duty without delight is begrudging obedience, and begrudging obedience is disobedience. Amen? So, Paul's address is to the church. At a place like Ephesus, you would not have gathered with the church unless you were a believer. This is what separates Ephesus from modern-day Magnolia. <laughs> if you gathered as the church in a place like Ephesus, you might lose your life. If you gather as the church in a place like Magnolia, you'll go to lunch afterwards. All right? There is no calling to die in American Christianity anymore. Praise God for our freedoms. I'm so thankful for such freedoms. But it is freedoms like that that have made us soft when it comes to obedience to God. It doesn't demand death. We don't have to pay or count the cost even before following the Lord. We just simply go and do what the rest of our culture does on Sunday morning. We show up for church, and we go eat a good Mexican meal afterwards. Amen? So as we proceed with our look at this text, you have to remember it's an address to the church. It's an address to believing parents. It's an address to children who are growing up in homes where parents are saying what we believe might cost us our lives. But we're going to believe it. And we're going to trust God. It's an address to people who are trying to raise their children to be Christians, not moralists. Raising their children to count the cost of following Jesus Christ in their world. So one problem with our identity as children and parents is that we so easily forget the importance we do not regard as necessary or we might simply ignore what it means to be a new identity, a new person to receive a new identity in Christ Jesus. Another problem, I think, for at least Christian parents and children is that we do not depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. So another contextual issue that we have is this comes on, chapters and verse numbers were added for our benefit, right? They're to aid in our study, our proclamation of the Word. But when this would have been read, it would have been read as one letter. And in verse five, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes these words, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Everything that a believer does, Paul is saying, should proceed from the Spirit of God which is alive within them. Again, he's talking to people with a new identity. 
In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says that when you believe the word which was preached to you, you receive the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a seal of your inheritance in heaven. Believers, you are such because the Holy Spirit regenerated you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you. The Holy Spirit has made you new. The Holy Spirit is alive in you if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. Paul says as much in Romans 8. He talks about there where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says those who do not know God do not have the Spirit of God alive in them. So everything we do must proceed from this. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? In English, this is a present imperative. It it does not describe a one-time filling, but a life that has a regular pattern of being filled. It's like filling a glass over and over again. To to be clear, though, because of of the nature of maybe how some of us have grown up, this is not a description of what's seen in charismatic Pentecostal Assembly of God circles. Paul did not say you must go and have hands laid on you, that you must speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. He said in chapter 1 that when you believed, you received the Spirit of God. And here he's saying, be filled, be continually filled. So you're filled with the Holy Spirit, as Galatians 5 reveals to us, by walking in the way of the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of your flesh. In other words, you are filled with the Spirit when you stop looking into or looking to worldly things to fill you up, and you turn to the Spirit of God for your filling instead. This is what Paul means when he says, do not be filled with wine. He's using the example of wine. He's saying, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this analogy gives us some clues into what kind of person he's talking about. Why might someone become drunk? Why might someone drink until they're drunk? I jotted down a few ideas. Sadness, anger, Bitterness, boredom, foolishness, feeling guilty, and so on. There's many other reasons why somebody might do that. So the implication here is that someone who is not being filled with the Spirit but instead is being drunk on wine, committing debauchery, The implication is that they're looking for something, right? They're seeking something. What is it they're looking for? They're looking for love. They're looking for joy. They're looking for peace. Looking for patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, that is the list of the fruit of the Spirit of God. They're in need of the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit is found by being dependent upon the Spirit of God. He's saying, do not get drunk on worldly wisdom. Do not get drunk on the world, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the way to honor God. That's the key to honoring God, to honoring one another as Christians, as children and parents 
This is the key, is that we're relying on the Spirit of God. So far then, our context clues have shown us that this passage is written to believers within a local church who are charged to live and to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Be dependent upon God. Our final context clue is found in Ephesians 5.21, which says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul issues this command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that one verse sets up the next three sections. There's an address to husbands and wives. There's an address to children and parents. And there's an address to slaves and their masters. In chapter 4, we see that Jesus has given the church shepherds and teachers, which are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so the church then submits themselves to their shepherds and teachers for their own equipping as Christians. This is one of the ways that the pastor, the teachers, would be equipping. It would be to say, hey, submit to one another. There is godly authority which has been ordained for our lives, and we must adhere to it. And so in 5.22-33, says, He lays out the roles of husbands and wives. And he says to wives, wives, you are to submit to your husbands as the church, which is made up of men and women, husbands, wives, boys and girls, as they submit themselves to Christ. Husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, to nourish and cherish her as for your own body. In 6, 5 through 9, we have the relationship of slaves to their masters. I mean, all of these need to be sermons on their own, and we'll get into much of it as we get into Titus. Some of these same themes are in Titus. But in 6, 5 through 9, I'm just trying to lay out some context for where we're at. Obey your masters as you would Christ, as slaves of Christ, he says. Masters, then, were addressed, and they were told to rule well. As you know that both their master, talking about the slave, and your master is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. But Paul is saying, even masters, remember whom you serve as you rule over those who are under you. Finally, in 6, 1 through 4, we have the relationship that we are examining today. And within the statements regarding these various relationships within the church found from 5.21 through 6.9, you see the foundation for the kind of authority, the kind of submissiveness, the kind of relationships that glorify God. There are phrases like this, out of reverence to Christ, as you submit to Christ, as Christ loved, in the Lord, of the Lord, as would as you would Christ, as slaves of Christ, knowing that your master is in heaven. Those same kind of phrases litter the pages of the book of Ephesians. That is, if you can litter something by dropping gold nuggets everywhere. Who you are in Christ is a matter of first importance today. There is... I think it was Tozer who said there's, there, there's nothing, there's no question more important for you to settle than to decide what it is you think of when you think of Christ. 
What is it that you think about the Lord? That's the question you have to settle. Is He Lord? And if so, is He Lord of your life? Or is He not? Have you decided that? That's what you have to answer. Because secondary to that, secondary to who you are in Christ, is who you are as a child, or who you are as a parent, or who you are as a neighbor, or a church member. Those things are secondary. Let me be utterly clear on this topic in case I haven't been yet. Discipleship in the home is what we're talking about today. And this letter is written to the church, which means the elders and the church body play a role in equipping men and women, boys and girls, to be disciples of Christ, to be the kind of parents and children who honor God. That is something that we all must be involved in, whether we're parents or not. But this passage also makes this astounding point for us today. Parents, I ask for your attention in this. Parents bear the greatest weight of responsibility for their child's discipleship. That's the heart of the passage today. It's, it's the thick of it. It's the meat of it. It's what the Apostle Paul wants his hearers to know. It's what God wants you and I to know today. Is that as parents, you bear the greatest weight of responsibility for your child's discipleship. It's on you. The Lord entrusted children to you for this cause. Boys and girls, do you want to hear what God has for you today? In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, I'll read it again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Parents are kind of nudging their kids right now, right? Hey, listen up. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. How many of you ever had a daddy that said, hey, I brought you into this world, I can take you out? Right. <laughs> it's not quite what's in view here. <laughs> one of the things I love about this passage, first and foremost, is just verse 1, how it begins. It begins with the word children, comma. When you write a letter to somebody, how do you start it? Alan, comma. Kent, comma. Dudley, comma. Had to use your last name because I already used Alan, so. <laughs> All right. Paul's addressing the children in the congregation, and I love it. There's two things we need to assume about this. One is that the, the children were present. Praise God. They're there. They're with them. They're in the assembly. Right there watching mommy and daddy watching other men and women, other boys and girls seek the Lord. The second thing we need to assume, because it's right here, is, is that serving God is not above a child. It's, it's not something you grow into. It's something expected of you from childhood. That God has a command for children here, that they obey their parents. 
So they're gathered together to hear the word read, to hear it taught. And it's just one more example of Christ's attitude, of God's attitude rather, towards children. Remember Christ and the example in the Gospels of Him with the children. And the disciples are saying, let's, let's move them out of here. He's teaching. And Jesus stops them. Why? Because they weren't a nuisance among the assembly. They weren't to be taken away and to be managed elsewhere. They are valued by God. They're valued by the church as ones who need to know God and to obey His Word themselves. There's a command here for them to do this. And we know this because of what Paul says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's, it's not a frivolous thing that Paul lays out. He doesn't say, hello children, how are you? Send my best to the children. Be sure to do your homework, kiddos. Although you need to do your homework. How's your baseball swing going? Or I guess in that time it would have been like a boulder toss or something. Paul issues a word from God on high for children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord that this is right. You see, boys and girls, God's command to obey your parents is for you. It's, it's for you to hear and for you to understand and for you to listen to. Obey means to listen. It means to hear the instruction of. But it also implies, it means rather, to follow those instructions. And part of obedience is following by way of example, not just by way of command. It's to follow the example of your parents, to honor them, to revere them. And it's good for all of us to pay attention to God's commands. It's good for all of us, adults and children, to take great care in doing what God has said. Because if we do not, one of the first things we need to understand is that we're sinning against God. We're sinning against God if we don't listen to God, if we don't obey God. And in this case, children would be sinning against their parents also. So God instructs you to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, this phrase in the Lord, is a, it's like a qualifying statement. That means it's, it's, giving us, it, it's giving us instruction on what obedience means. It gives us the foundation for our obedience, and it gives us the rules of obedience. First, we see the foundation. Obeying your parents is first and foremost obedience to God. Obey your parents in the Lord. It's very similar to what we read about slaves. Slaves, obey your masters as those who are slaves to Christ. It, it's understanding that above my parents' rule is the rule of God Himself. That they are to submit themselves to God, and so therefore I am to submit myself to God also. Obedience is not simply a matter of, of what's right or wrong. It's not simply a matter of morality, though it certainly pertains to it. It doesn't leave it out. But more than that, it's a matter of spiritual importance. Your parents, children, are the authority over you. They're God's gift to you. They're a God-given authority over you. They're responsible for your life in multiple ways. But there is a greater authority beyond them, and that is the Lord God Himself. Your obedience is to God first, you obey your parents because you want to obey God, and that is the foundation for obedience. 
but in the Lord establishes also the rules for obedience. Now, it is my prayer that all the children in here, that all of you who maybe are out of your home recently or been out of your home a long time, of course, it's my hope that you grew up in homes where your parents loved the Lord, where they were seeking to follow God in how they raised you. And we're currently doing that. However, I know this isn't the case for all children. It's not the case for every child here. I would never assume something like that. So when the Lord provides guardrails, it provides rules for obedience. We are called to obey our parents so long as obeying our parents doesn't become disobeying God. For example, if a parent asks their child to lie for them about some matter, maybe it's a step-parent pitting their child against a parent, or a parent, recently divorced, pitting their child against a parent. If a parent calls a child to lie, what should a child do? Should a child obey such a command? No. Why? Because God says, do not lie. His command is greater. So obedience to God must go before your obedience to your parents if you want to disobey or if you, want to, if you want to obey God and not disobey God. So what this means for us, what it means for our children, is that as you grow up, as you're pursuing a deeper, stronger relationship with God, you need to learn His Word, you need to know His Word, so that you may know God and love Him. So that you may know how to be obedient to Him, how to follow Him. And so then Paul lays out the obedience, the why behind obedience. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The word right means righteous or just. It means this is right in the sight of the one true God who is perfectly holy and righteous. And then Paul inserts a cross-reference to help his audience understand that, hey, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. In verse 2, he says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's quoting the fifth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments. The word honor means to value, it means to revere, it means to, to hold in high esteem, to understand that they are an authority over you that God has granted to you. And then if you'll do that... It will go well with you. You may live long in the land. I want to make a note that this command doesn't go away after you reach a certain age. Adults, if we are talking around our children in a way about our parents or our in-laws that does not show honor, we're in sin. And we should not expect them to grow up understanding how to honor us. Amen? Further than that, one person who agrees, I like it. Further than that, 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if you fail to take care of your parents in their old age, that that's worse than being an unbeliever. You're failing to honor your parents. This is worse than unbelief, Paul writes to Timothy. The promise here was tied to the command in Deuteronomy 6. It was to teach the Ten Commandments, to teach love for the Lord God above all else, 
to their children. And that if you do that, if you'll follow this instruction, as we saw at the end of our passage last week, that there is blessing in obedience, that your children's children, your son's son may know the Lord and that it will go well with him. See, God's command is not rigid. It's not stiff. It's not obedience for obedience' sake. He has a reward in mind for those children who will listen to him. His commands are always meant for our ultimate joy. In God, Psalm 16 says that in God we find the path to life and that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That that in Him we see how to live and He grants pleasures to us. So in the same way guardrails on a mountainside road prevent you from going over the edge and plunging to your death, God's rules or God's commands guard you from destruction and lead you to joy in God alone, to desire in Him. And in fact, that's the purpose of all God's commands. The purpose of all of them is that we would adhere to the first command, which is that you would have no other gods before me. It's that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these commands have a promise that it may go well with you. God has in mind blessing in obedience. Obedience to God makes us fruitful in good works. It's good for those around us because as we obey God, as we're loving God, we're also loving neighbor. As we abide in Christ, Jesus says in John 15, He will also abide in us, which ultimately leads to eternal life. If you would live long in the land. In Deuteronomy 6, the land of Canaan is in view. But how do you know Israel royally messed that up? didn't obey God. It didn't remain in Him at all. They whored after other gods, the Word says. They chased other gods. They served other gods. They bowed down to other gods. So they didn't live long in the land of Canaan. And so Christ comes and offers a better promise. If you'll believe in Him, if you'll follow Him, you'll live long in the land. The land that is now in view is the new heavens and the new earth will dwell eternally with God. And so children, I urge you today to turn away from sin, to turn to Jesus Christ. Believe that He died for your sins, that, he raised, uh, that God raised Him from the dead. And then follow Him with your whole life, which starts by obeying your mother and your father as you learn to obey God. One way to check the spiritual temperature of your children is to examine their obedience to examine their obedience. Is my child obedient? On the same way you won't treat a brain tumor with ibuprofen, you should not treat disobedience with just simple discipline. There's got to be instruction. There's got to be some removing and digging around in the heart to figure out what is it my child needs spiritually. They need Christ. What is obedience? One of the phrases that we've used in our home and learned it from a friend of mine who I think learned it from a preacher, so who knows where it started? I have no idea. But obedience is first time, every time, with a happy heart. First time, every time, with a happy heart. But when I'm asking my children to obey, though I am after their obedience to me, yes, I'm ultimately after their obedience to God, and I'm trying to gear their heart towards 
obeying an authority in their life. And I want them to understand that authority for me comes from God and that a command to obey me is a command from God first and foremost. So if I can get their hearts to think about obedience as first time, every time with a happy heart, I'm hoping that as they grow up, as they encounter the Scriptures, as they see the commands of God, they'll say, okay, first time, every time with a happy heart. And they'll follow the Lord happily. This is part of how I'm trying to connect obedience to Daddy and Mama to obedience to the Lord. That that's the matter of first importance here. Am I perfect at this? No. I fail miserably often. Often. And then I get to see those failures in my children as they mimic my behavior back toward me the next time they're disobedient. That's what I mean by this is one of the most humbling passages in God's Word. Another phrase we use is that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We don't want to delay in our obedience to mommy and daddy. We don't want to delay in our obedience to God. Remember your child's spiritual condition is the matter of first importance. Your child needs a new identity in Christ, not merely good morals. Pastor by the name of Odie Bauckham said something similar to this. I think he put it in a book, but he also preached it. That hell will be populated. I didn't look the quote up, so this is my paraphrase. Hell will be populated with a host of people who didn't cuss, who didn't cheat, who didn't steal or lie, who didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with those who do. Because those same people also didn't love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, and all their strength. Their children don't need simply good morals. They need a heart that is made new by the Spirit of God, not simply an attitude made new by discipline. We're after their hearts. We're after their soul, not their attitudes and actions. Amen? The children, all of us, even as adult children in here, we all have parents. We all were born to someone We must learn to love the Lord above all else. Learn to obey Him and learn to obey your parents. In Ephesians 6.4, we have a command to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's fitting for the word fathers to be used here to be used first, the the word that we see. Because as fathers, we're to be spiritual leaders in the home. That's part of what Ephesians 5.22-33 is laying out when it talks about the role of husbands and wives. The word fathers is largely used for fathers. But it is also the same word used at times for parents. So the address is to fathers as a spiritual leader in the home, but it doesn't negate the importance, the blessing, the help, the support, and the strength of godly mothers. Those are in view here also. So it's true that parents bear the greatest responsibility for their child's discipleship, but Scripture shows us that it begins with fathers. The, the verse contains a negative, right? It contains a do not, and then it contains a positive, a do, a positive command. So do not provoke to anger 
your children. This means do not rouse to wrath. Do not exasperate them. Do not anger them. Getting your child to this kind of a place takes a while. You might see it in a, in a circumstance. That, that's going to happen. But, but what's in view here is the long-term ramifications of what happens to a child whose parents are abusing their authority. And it leads to rebellion then, not only against parents, but against the Lord. It's the kind of poking, the kind of prodding that leads to anger, that leads to exasperation. How might a parent abuse their authority? They can do it by belittling their child, poking fun at, making fun of, talking negatively about them, to them even. You can do it by making comments in frustration. Didn't want to write that one down, but I did, because it's true. You can do it by using overt, overt sarcasm towards your child. You can do it through discipline and punishment that is excessive, either by force or by frequency. You can do it by shouting, yelling at, screaming at, cussing. There's all sorts of ways that we can exasperate a child. And this is why, as a parent, you must remember that you are under God's authority first. That has a way of humbling you, does it not? That has a way of keeping you from provoking your child to anger, at least making you less prone to provoke your child to anger. God has not dealt with you that way. If you remember that you are a child of God, if you remember that, hey, I'm in Christ, this has a way of informing now how you respond to your children. If you are a Christian, you are so because of lavish grace, lavish mercy, lavish love. You were a people who were once far off, but God has brought you near to Him. He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ. God has showed great love towards you, great forgiveness towards you, great grace and mercy. Parents, we would do ourselves a favor by remembering Jesus' words to the crowds. If anyone afflicts harm or inflicts harm on one of these little ones. It would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. So fathers, parents, guard yourself from sinning against God and against your children. There's a whole lot at stake here. The state of their souls, their view of God, their love for you. I mean, I hear it see it a lot. People who had parents who were provoking them to anger throughout their life are now struggling with how to deal with God who is supposed to be a father to us. It goes a little something like this. If, if mommy and daddy who say they love God treat me like this over and over again, then God must not be worth loving. That's the negative part of the verse. It's a, it's a warning from on high. Do not provoke your children to anger. Be careful. Do not provoke your children to anger. And so a diagnostic question that we should ask ourselves, one that I find myself asking, is when my child is enraged at me or at their sibling or at something else, what have I done 
to provoke that in them? And what can I do to help? And, and that's where the positive part of the verse comes in. Don't do this, do this. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. First, let me deal with this phrase, bring them up. Bring them up means to care for, to rear up, to look after. It's a devotion to the cultivation. It's a devotion to the growth, to the strengthening of your child's heart, soul, and strength. Like a farmer plows, a farmer tills up, a farmer plants, a, pl a farmer waters, he observes, he meets the needs of his crop when he sees them. So too are parents to give this kind of nurture and care for their children. Bring them up. God says, rear them up, care for them. And then he tells us how, how you are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not a make sure they're fed, make sure they're clothed, make, their, make sure their physical needs are met. Like that's the stuff of basic decency. This is stuff all parents should do. I know they don't, but this is stuff all parents should be doing. Even unbelievers will do those things. Some of them, believers, even go so far as to teach their kids morals. So what God has in mind for Christians must be not less than that, but more than that. The command here is about the spiritual nourishment of your child. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So what does God have in mind for discipline here? It's more than what you might think. <laughs> discipline has in mind the whole spiritual training and education of your child. It's the idea of cultivate, uh, cultivating the mind and the heart and the soul and the strength. It includes commands, admonitions, reproof, correction, discipline, and training. As I was reading that this week, as I was studying this passage, I immediately thought of 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. And what we're told the Word of God is for. It says there that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God breathed. It's God spoken. It's all from God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, What's out here for us to see so clearly is that God's Word is the tool that we need most in parenting. It's what we need to give our lives to is knowing God's Word so that we might train our children well. It's the source of spiritual cultivation, which is further verified by the phrase of the Lord. What is it? It's not just bring them up in discipline. It's the discipline of the Lord. How are we going to know what that means if we don't know what His Word says? Physical discipline is not lost here, though. As the Lord disciplines those He loves, so too should parents discipline their children. Proverbs is clear on this. You spare the rod of discipline, you will spoil the child. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it away, Proverbs 23 says. So there's a whole other talk that needs to be given on what right discipline looks like. I promise you it's not abusive. It's instructional. And spankings are a matter of last resort, not first response. 
We don't go straight to capital punishment. We go to instruction, reproof, correction, teaching, training. It says instruction of the Lord, which... God, I was just way wrong on my assumptions of this. Instruction is the word admonition. I just thought teaching as I read instruction of the Lord. I thought, oh, teach them the ways of the Lord. But no, no, he's saying you give spiritual admonition. You give spiritual warnings. Admonition is a cautionary advice about something. It's especially pertaining to danger or other unpleasantness. And so it's more, not less than keeping your kids from playing in the street, touching fire, jabbing a knife into a light socket, right? All those things are bad. But, but again, even unbelievers are going to do those things. These are specifically warnings like we saw in Deuteronomy 6, that if you'll do this, it'll go well with you in the land. Daddy, why do we follow these commands? Because the Lord saved us out of Egypt. We were slaves to Pharaoh, and he brought us out of there, and he given us this land, and he says that we are to follow him in the land, that it might go well with us, that we'll live long in the land. Deuteronomy 6, that's the example given there in verses 10 through 15. And, and then Psalm 78, Asaph was warning the nation of Israel, don't go the way of our fathers. Don't forget the Lord. Remember Him that it will go well with us. Bless Israel's heart, they didn't listen. Many of them didn't. Some did. And so it's instruction for your children to remember the Lord. It's instruction to follow the Lord, to love the Lord above all else, that it may go well with them and their children's children. Or to put it another way, your grandchildren's children, your great-grandchildren. I said a couple of weeks ago that one of the problems with Israel is they lived like they weren't going to have great-grandkids. They thought only about themselves. They thought only about their own bellies, what they desired. And their grandchildren suffered for it. Don't be like Israel, at least the unfaithful parts of Israel. Be faithful to God so that your great-grandchildren might know the Lord also, not only your children. This is the epitome of Christian discipleship in the home. It's to teach your children that there is a perfectly holy God whom they should know, love, and follow. Anyone who doesn't will receive just punishment in this life and in the life to come. Again, the instruction of the wise father and of Proverbs guides us in this. Over and again, he warns his children to avoid scoffers. He warns them to stay away from the adulteress. He warns them to keep themselves unstained from the world. He warns them to know God and His wisdom that it may go well with them. That's what we see throughout the book of Proverbs. Maybe the best summary of what Proverbs teaches is found in Proverbs 14.12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Father in Proverbs is saying, listen, son, destruction is bound up in your heart. But if you will seek God, it, you will find Him. And, and having found Him, son, you will find life. Seek the Lord. You will find Him. 
We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that discipline and instruction, the kind that's in view here, are the ones that belong to God. That There is worldly wisdom on this matter. It, it abounds. It's, it's insane. I mean, it, it is in vogue right now to raise your children genderless. Let them decide. This is utter foolishness from Satan. It's satanic, and children are going to suffer for it greatly. You and I, and that's like an extreme example, but you and I cannot compromise on this. We can't. We must know the Lord's instruction. We must know His wisdom. We must know His discipline and teach it to our children. I have no doubt in my own life that I have syncretized some of the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. And as I've had children and they're growing up, I'm learning some of these things. Lord, help me. Help me. I am guilty of raising my voice so that my child will listen. Do you realize how stupid that is? I am exerting dominance as the authoritarian in my home by raising my voice. It's like a dog that tries to growl louder than a puppy. I'm an idiot and I've sinned against God. I need help. I need help. Major help. My kids will never hear a word of instruction come out of my mouth that comes at high decibels. It's not going to happen. They're going to shut their ears to it time and time again, and eventually their hearts are going to close toward me. And Heaven forbid they might close toward God. The Bible says that not many of you should become teachers because you'll be held to a stricter standard. Guess what, parents? You're a teacher. You're a teacher. We better plead for the help of God every morning when our feet hit that carpet or that floor or whatever. Plead for His help. You need it. On your way home, after work, plead for God's help. Plead for it. We must examine every area of our parenting. We must check it against God's Word. Repent to God where we've missed the mark. Commit to God's way of parenting and discipleship in the home. This might involve a family meeting. You're like, well, my family doesn't have meetings. Well, it's time to start family meetings. Daddies, you need to go to your family and say, I've been in error. Mamas, you need to go to your family and say, I've been in error. The Lord has convicted me. And I know that I have made a mess of some of the things in the past. And this is not the time in that meeting for qualifying statements. Like, I did wrong, but y'all did wrong too. That's not where you do that at. That's not an apology anymore. An apology is where you own your own mistakes and you say, and then this is repentance, the buck stops here. I'm going to commit myself to God and to His way of parenting. And children, bear with me because I'm going to fail some more. 
spouse. Bear with me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail some more. But we've got to give this an honest effort. We've got to commit ourselves in this direction. It's just being honest. Have a family meeting. And then continue those family meetings where now you talk about the Lord and the things you're learning. You pray together. You ask for the Lord's help. Discipline and instruction provide the teaching tone of parents. It's how we are to behave with our kids. And some of the best examples of this, again, are found in Proverbs. My son, pay attention to my words. My son, whatever you do, get wisdom. My son, bring honor to your father. Do not be a disgrace to your mother. Those are the kind of phrases you see throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This verse has often been explained away as merely just a proverb, a wise saying. I'm not saying it's not completely. I wonder, too, if some of the people explaining it away were those who did not fully commit themselves to God's way of raising children. And now to make themselves feel better about a verse like this, they're saying, well, that was just a wise saying, not a guarantee. But let us be careful to not so quickly explain away something that God's Word says because we've been unfaithful to it. Let us be faithful to what His Word says. Parents, you bear the greatest responsibility for your child's discipleship. But you are not alone. Ephesians 1-3, through 3, you are in Christ. You have the Spirit of God as the very power alive in you. He has not left you. He's with you. Amen? Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to give you some time to respond. Singing today. Give you time to respond in prayer. I have three things I want to urge. First is to children, all of us, young and old. Obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. And so today I call you to repent of your sins. Maybe it's just a sin that was committed in ignorance. You didn't know what the Word said. Maybe it was sin committed in apathy. You knew what the Word said, but you didn't care until today. And now the weight of the Holy Spirit is on you and you're, you're realizing it. Repent. Maybe it's willful disobedience. You've set your heart against your parents. Repent of that. Turn to God. Turn to His design for children. Parents, I say the same, very similar to you. Obey the Lord in your parenting. Repent of your sins, whether they be of ignorance, apathy, flat-out disobedience, and turn to God's design for parenting today. Surrender yourself to the Lord. Church, I did this a few weeks ago when I said we've missed the mark with our children's ministries and the ways that we've failed to equip families. I don't think it's been an utter failure, a complete failure at all, but I think we can do better. So I invite you alongside myself, the elders of this church, to offer repentance to God. We've been ignorant or apathetic or disobedient. Walk with us as we turn toward God's design for the church, 
for discipleship. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. I thank you for these wonderful men and women and boys and girls. Father, would you help us now to obey your word? Help us to follow you. Whatever way the Spirit is leading us now, help us to respond with repentance and faith and obedience. Lord, if there's anyone in here whose heart is far from you, they don't know you, you've not been made Lord of their life, pray that you would convict them of their sin, and that you would help them to see Jesus Christ who died to save them from their sins, that they might be reconciled to you, no longer apart from you, but now with you, near you, because of Christ Jesus. Help them to have faith in Him alone for their salvation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.